This is an AMI podcast. Good morning. It's Monday, August the 22nd, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-audio and AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go! Are you feeling it on a Monday? Let's go. Come on now. Let's let her rip. Welcome to the show. Coming up on the show today, we'll catch up with Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press. Michelle has an update on the water shortage in Iqaluit. Digital accessibility specialist Denis Boudreau explains how to use accessibility checkers on software programs like Microsoft Word. An Edmonton-based talent agency is aiming to bring more disability representation into the fashion industry. Jim Crisco will share details in his Western Regional Report. And Google's Search AI is set to improve the quality of their feature snippets. Buzzwords, buzzwords, buzzwords. Mark Flalo will debuzz them when he gives you the lowdown. And Amy Amanti reviews the Netflix series Keep Breathing. Busy show coming your way on a Monday... And busy is the theme of our top story as well, because a busy day lies ahead for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz during the first full day of his Canadian visit. Emily Javeski has more. Olaf Scholz and his vice chancellor touched down in Montreal Sunday evening for a visit that includes scheduled stops in Toronto and Stephenville in western Newfoundland. Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland was on hand to greet the dignitaries on the tarmac. Scholz and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau are expected to sign a deal for Canada to supply clean hydrogen to Germany, as well as discuss the war in Ukraine. The visit coincides with renewed calls from Ukraine for Trudeau to cancel a decision to allow the return of a turbine being repaired in Montreal for use in a Russian pipeline that supplies natural gas to Germany. Emily Joveski, The Canadian Press. Now, it's not just international leaders that are having a busy day of meetings because the premiers of Ontario, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick and PEI will meet in Moncton today for a summit to discuss the healthcare system. Rob Westgate looks ahead. Ontario Premier Doug Ford is also scheduled to meet individually with New Brunswick Premier Blaine Higgs, PEI Premier Dennis King, and Federal Intergovernmental Affairs Minister Dominic LeBlanc prior to the summit. Ford met with his Nova Scotia counterpart Tim Houston on Sunday in Halifax to discuss health care system pressures. His visit to the Maritimes comes as Ontario's health system has been strained by staff shortages in recent weeks. Rob Westgate, The Canadian Press. Let's turn abroad for some climate-related stories. Flooding caused by heavy rain is prompting water rescues in parts of Texas. Jim Ryan has that story. The city of Mesquite, which had not seen a drop of rain for weeks, has been drenched with nearly seven inches in the last 24 hours. Near downtown Dallas, cars are submerged on highways and in parking lots. Dallas Fire Department Rescue Officer Jordan Wallace sees it all the time. Everybody thinks, oh, it's not going to happen to me. And so you see water uh, where a street might be flooded and you start driving through it. Only to get stuck. He and other first responders are bracing for a very busy day. Jim Ryan, ABC News, Dallas. And let's go across the Pacific to China, where China is dealing with a significant drought and enacting emergency measures to protect crops. Todd Ant has more. This is the hottest, driest summer in China since records were started 61 years ago. Crops have wilted and reservoirs are at half of their normal water level. 
The autumn rice grain harvest accounts for 75% of China's annual total, and in order to save the harvest, the agriculture minister said they will try to increase rain by seeding clouds with chemicals and spraying crops with a watering-retaining agent to limit evaporation. A reduced Chinese grain harvest would have a potential global impact and boost demand for imports. Temperatures in one Chinese province reaching as high as 113 degrees. Todd Ant, ABC News. In a related story, the United Nations World Food Program is warning that 22 million people are at risk of starvation in the Horn of Africa as that region is dealing with historic drought, years of insufficient rainfall across Kenya, Somalia, 40 years. Thousands of people have already died in northern Kenya. WFP chief David Beasley says the international community has to do more to help. With all profits being so high right now, record-breaking profits, billions of dollars every week and record profits, uh, the Gulf states need to help. They need to step up. And they need to do it now. It's inexcusable not to. Particularly these are their neighbors. These are their brothers and sisters, their family. Beasley says the World Food Program could save millions of lives with just one day's worth of oil profits. Let's get to our daily polls. At AMI-audio is where you find us on Twitter. Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. On Friday, we asked you, do you have plans to learn a new language? If yes, let us know how you plan to do it in the comments. 42.9% of you said yes. 57.1% of you said no. We had Studio Brock tweet in. My French is really rough and I want to improve it. The problem is I have nowhere to use it where I live. Eventually, I'll either make French friends or move to Quebec. Brock, I can tell you, as someone who lived there for 25 years, be careful what you wish for. And Terry tweets in, being hard of hearing and speak English, it is hard enough as it is. I'm still being corrected or rephrase my statement so people can understand me. Today's Daily Poll. At AMI-audio on Twitter, Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. I'm going to set it up with a news story for you, a leaked video that shows Finland's 36-year-old prime minister celebrating with friends at a private party has sparked a debate among Finns about what level of reveling is appropriate for a world, world leader. Karen Chamis has the story. In a leaked video, Prime Minister Sanna Marin is seen dancing and singing with friends at a private party. The 36-year-old leader also poses for photos and joins group hugs. She's clearly having a good time. The question is now arising in Finland if it's appropriate for the nation's leader to be involved in such party going. Marin herself said she did nothing to be ashamed of and it did not interfere with her work. We didn't have any government meetings during that week and I had time off and, and spent it with my friends uh, and did nothing illegal. I'm Karen Chamas. So the Daily Poll at AMI-audio is where you find us on Twitter. Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. Finland's prime minister was caught on camera partying with friends during her vacation. How do you feel about politicians letting loose? I support it, no issue, or I dislike it. And again, it's really important to note there's a difference between I support it and no issue. I support says, yeah, in fact, it's probably good for our politicians to let loose. No issue is it doesn't really bother me, right? There's a difference between those two. And I'm trying to figure out where I land right in between that. Because I think it's important, no matter what you do in life, to blow off some steam. However you choose to do so, if it's relatively healthy and doesn't put other people in danger, it's kind of your choice. And taking selfies with friends and dancing is not exactly the least healthy thing you can do. That said, you know, your, your neighbor just over there to the east of you when you're in Finland, is uh, currently engaged in invading other countries. So maybe I'd be a little bit cautious about how uh, loosey-goosey I'm getting. But frankly, like, politicians are people, and they should be allowed to enjoy themselves. Maybe we don't want them getting, like, blotto, like having rolling brownouts or blackouts. But if they want to dance and take selfies with friends, who are we 
to clutch our pearls. Grace Scofield, what do you think? I support it. I mean, politicians are people too. As much as they open themselves up to criticism and all of that, they're people. And they need to have a healthy work like life balance just like the rest of us. And so I think that it's a really good idea. And, you know, you bring up the point that there's other world issues going on and maybe this isn't the right time. But in those six hours that she was out with friends and she was partying, taking pictures, whatever, what was going to get solved in those six hours? That Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it's all kind of, it's all relative, I think, um, in this situation. But I do support it because I think that there are important things for just regular people to do. And that's what politicians are. Just because they're politicians doesn't mean they don't, you know, get to have fun. And we're not talking about the Boris Johnson situation where we're having parties during COVID-19 lockdown. Exactly. Right? There's, there's yeah. a big difference here. This isn't something where it was like Finland was on lockdown and here's the prime minister having a shindig. Yeah, exactly. This is, this is different. This is someone on their own private time having a vacation. I mean, look, even look at the trip right now that the German chancellor is taking in Canada. There was a formal dinner last night. There was a bit of vino served there, right? There were a couple of wines. I'm sure there were a couple shotskis behind the scenes being had, for, you know, between a couple bureaucrats hanging loose, having some conversations. So at a certain point, like we need to distinguish that, oh, well, if it's a black tie formal, we're cool with our politicians being there. But if it's a house party, no, no, you can't do that. I mean, come on, 36 years old. You got to live life a little bit still. Exactly. Let's bring in Mike Ross on this one. Mike, always a pleasure to chat with you on a Monday morning. What do you think of this daily poll? I listen. I am absolutely a okay with a politician letting loose. I want the people making some of the big decisions that impact our lives to kind of be relaxed, right? I mean, let let me tell you just briefly. A friend of mine years ago was having a pretty major surgery. The surgeon came in to see him in the morning. I think it was may have been a Monday morning too. And so he comes in, he says, Hey, so how's it going today? And my friend says, Never mind me. How are you doing? How are you doing? Did you sleep well last night? Did you have a good weekend? Like, are you ready to do this surgery on me? Uh, you know, he wanted to know that the doctor was relaxed, calm, had had his eight hours of sleep, was ready to 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 do his job. And I thought, wow, that's, that's in one hand, on one hand, he was trying to be funny. My, my friend was trying to be funny with the surgeon. But on the other hand, when you sort of pull back, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. The people who are making the big decisions, I want them to have downtime, which is why when I see what um, Doug Ford has gone through in Ontario over the last couple of years, you know, going up to the cottage I, this past winter and, and snowmobiling, I want him to do that. What I don't want is Doug Ford telling other people to stay home during a lockdown, and then he goes and does some snowmobiling, right? Mm -hmm. I want our politicians to do it responsibly and do it with credibility, but I want them to do it. I want them to relax. And by the way, I saw one of the videos uh, of the uh, Finnish prime minister um, at, at dancing at this party. It was all good, man. Yeah. There was nothing yeah. like she was just having a good. I wish I could have that good a time on a <laughs> <Yeah>. weekend. Like, <laughs> seriously, big deal. So, yeah, I, I I want them to let loose. I want them to to have that downtime, that family time, because good Lord knows we all need it. Yeah. We need it. You need it. I need it. 
they certainly need it. That's what decompression and work-life balance is through and through. Of course, there are other ways people do it. Golfing is one way. As you say, snowmobiling. There's all kinds of stuff people do to do self-care. And I think having a little bit of of a good time at 36 years old is not the end of the world. Mike, thank you for this. We'll talk to you a little bit later in the hour. You've got a really interesting big business story of the day. But for now, I want folks to vote at AMI-audio on Twitter, Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Or, of course, you can send us emails, feedback at ami.ca, or give us phone calls, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Let's go back to Grace Scofield for the National Weather Update. Thanks, Dave. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We start off in St. John's, Newfoundland, where it's clearing up this morning with a high of 25 degrees today. In Halifax, it's cloudy, becoming a mix of sun and cloud this morning, with a high of 26 degrees. In Montreal, Quebec, it's mainly cloudy, with a 40% chance of showers and a risk of a thunderstorm this afternoon, with a high of 27 degrees. In Ottawa today, it's cloudy, with a 60% chance of showers and a risk of a thunderstorm, with a high of 23 degrees. In Toronto, it's cloudy today with a 30% chance of showers, changing to 70% chance of showers this afternoon with a risk of a thunderstorm and a high of 24 degrees. It's gotten darker since we got to work. It is mighty dark outside. Yeah, there's going to be a storm. (laughs) Storms are brewing. We've been waiting for a big storm for a couple days here in Toronto. I was expecting it yesterday. There was dark clouds, a little bit of lightning, nothing happened. But today, I think, is definitely the day. Today's the day, Grace. Today's the day. In Thunder Bay today, it's sunny with some increasing cloudiness this morning, then 30% chance of showers this afternoon, and a risk of a thunderstorm this afternoon as well, with a high of 26 degrees. Over in Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's sunny with a mix of sudden cloud late this afternoon, with a 30% chance of showers and a risk of a thunderstorm late this afternoon as well, with a high of 28 degrees. In Saskatoon, A mix of sun and cloud today, with a 30% chance of showers and a risk of a thunderstorm, with a high of 30 degrees. In Calgary, Alberta, it's mainly sunny, with a high of 26 degrees today. And in Edmonton, Alberta, it's mainly sunny, with a high of 27 degrees today. Up in Yellowknife, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and cloud near noon, with a high of 21 degrees. In Vancouver, B.C., a mix of sun and cloud that will clear up near noon with a high of 25 degrees. And in Victoria, B.C., a mix of sun and cloud becoming sunny near noon with a high of 23 degrees. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Grace. Coming up after the break, we'll catch up with Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press who has an update on the water shortage in Iqaluit, Nunavut. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's welcome back into the show Michelle McQuig, the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press, to find out what is making headlines. Hey, good morning, Michelle. How are you? Oh, do we have Michelle? Michelle? 
Michelle, my bell. You know what, guys? Let's uh, do a moment to reconnect here with Michelle, and why don't we get to the Canadian Press Business Minute with Laurie Paris as we try to reconnect with Michelle. Canada's main stock index hopes to regain some of the ground it lost at the end of the last trading week after significant losses in technology and cryptocurrency stocks saw it close in the red. The S&P TSX Composite Index was down 153 points Friday to close at 2111. Market stateside didn't fare any better. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average plummeted 292 points to 33,706. The S&P 500 index sank 55 points to 4,228, while the Nasdaq Composite plunged 260 points to 12,705. Asian stock markets were mostly lower after China cut an interest rate that affects mortgage lending. Japan's Nikkei dropped 135 points to close at 28,794. South Korea's Kospi fell 29 points to 2,463. And our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 76.88 cents U.S., down from Friday's close of 76.98 cents U.S. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Laurie Paris. We have endeavored and connected with Michelle McQuig. Thank you to Lori Paris for buying a bit of time for us there. Hey, good morning, Michelle. <laughs> Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm well. Always nice catching up with you. Michelle, let's start with a story that emerged on Friday. Nunavut declared a state of emergency. What's happening with the water shortage in Iqaluit? Yeah, uh, some of you may remember that there was a water issue with the Callaway last year sometime. Uh, th- that had to do with a busted tank in the city itself in the Callaway. This is a different situation. This is more of a climate change related one. What's happening there now is that one of the main arteries that feeds Lake Geraldine, which is the primary water, water reservoir for a Callaway, is at the lowest level it's been at for 40 years. And if it stays this way and water levels don't improve, they won't be able to get enough water into Lake Geraldine before the river freezes over for the season. So that's a bit of a problem, as you can imagine. And this is why uh, last week, actually, no, sorry, the week before, it ca- the city of Iqaluit declared a state of emergency. And then on Friday, the territory of Nunavut followed suit. And now what it's trying to do is finding a way to get, get these permits and all kinds of regulatory hoops to jump through. But they're seeking permission basically to start funneling more water into that other artery that feeds Lake Geraldine in order to get the water levels up. Is there any sense of like what that what that plan looks like? Is that is that uh, is that tankers? Is that jets? What what is what is moving water from one source to another look like, or a Great diversion question. look like? It's quite a good question, and I don't have a lot of answers at this point. Um, one of my colleagues was chasing this all weekend and hoping to get some answers. Uh, they're under a two week time frame, so the, the turnaround has got to be relatively quick in political terms. Uh, but we weren't able to get any answers, and we don't have any new developments to report at this point. Okay. But uh, you better believe that CP will be watching this one very closely. Yeah, following along on this one very, very closely for sure. Yeah. Michelle, let's turn to another story. It's about stigma surrounding mental health treatment using psychedelics. But let's start. What's the background on this? Yeah, so the background on this is that psychedelic Drugs of all kinds, as a lot of us knew growing up with messaging in the war on drugs era, um, that was a big part of my childhood messaging for sure. Uh, That was a pretty blanket message that covered all kinds of drugs uh, and and took them all sort of as as one main thing. So stimulants, opioids, psychedelics, uh, all kinds of things were kind of lumped in together. 
there's now a, a bit of a pushback on this. And a lot of researchers are saying, you know what, this was this was faulty messaging. Back in the 60s, before the war on drugs campaign really kicked off, there was a lot of interesting research being done on efforts to decriminal, excuse me, to, to use psychedelics to treat things as, re- as diverse as depression and anxiety and, and addictions and, and a number of things. And they're saying that they're hoping to see this kind of thing come back, um, to have that research pick up again, and also reduce some of the stigma around psychedelics themselves. And where they're getting uh, some hopeful messaging on that is because of a pilot project that I believe we've talked about on the show before in BC, where they're going to try and decriminalize certain quantities of drugs uh, that are for for recreational use. There's like hard number limits on what those possession limits would be. But that is something that's going to get underway early next year. So they're hoping that because of efforts like the BC Pilot Projects and some of the other conversations happening, uh, people might take a bit more of an interest in psychedelics and their other purposes. Yeah, there's a lot of research going on in British Columbia. There's research happening in Nova Scotia and Montreal, particularly mm-hmm. around uh, the use of mushrooms as a mental health and, medic- and medicinal tool. But Michelle, I always think when we talk about any kind of drug story and stigma, the fact is there's just a portion of the population that's always going to have that stigma and you kind of just need to push through without them. Uh, yeah, I mean... It- <laughs> It's, it's always a, a tricky issue. There's a lot of discourse on, on drugs and drug use. That, and it goes beyond psychedelics even too, right? Like all conversations that have been happening around harm reduction sites, a lot of that <clears throat> has to grapple with, with stigmas that have taken very firm root in recent decades. Yeah. But you're right. There's a ton of really interesting research, not just in Canada, but internationally around the use of psychedelics for mental health and addiction treatments. Um, and if anyone wants to have an interesting read on this, I could recommend uh, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan is a good one. He takes, okay. he takes a deep dive into the history of it and, and some personal uh, anecdotes as well. Speaking <laughs> of interesting reads, your colleague Bob Weber put out a really neat article yesterday. So let's finish up here right? with an energy Didn't story. He, he really yeah. did. It's an energy story looking uh it's it's an energy story about looking for new energy sources yes so what are researchers <laughs> in bc doing with volcanoes uh bob weber for those who don't know is a longtime cp veteran whose whose jam basically is taking science stories and writing them in a really accessible way and this article is a great example of this What's going to happen with, is with a volcano called Mount Cayley. Uh, it's in BC. It's not that far from Whistler. And it's technically part of the same chain of volcanoes as Mount St. Helens and some of the better known ones outside of Canada. What scientists are hoping to do is perform what they're basically directly comparing to a CAT scan on this volcano. They want to use a number of techniques to try and get a sense of what this volcano is like inside and outside. And then they want to be able to harness that for geothermal energy, uh, because apparently, I didn't know this, uh, Canada has a number of geothermal energy exploration efforts underway, but it's the only country uh, in, in a certain group of it that isn't actually producing any yet. So they're hoping that with Mount Cayley, with this volcano CAT scan, as they're calling it, they might get closer to doing that. It's it's tricky when you're working with volcanoes to try and harness energy, uh, yeah. right? Your accuracy, yeah, like your accuracy needs to be really good. Um, as a point of comparison, the, the, science, the main scientist that Bob interviewed for this article 
was saying that they need to have about a 50% success rate with this kind of thing uh, as, as a target, mm-hmm. whereas oil and gas uh, only need to be right one in seven times. So okay. uh, that's an interesting point of comparison there. So they're they're hoping that by doing this CAT scan, they'll have a much better sense of where to target their efforts and really maximize their success rate with that drilling. This story fascinates me uh, on so many levels. One, from purely a facetious point of view, uh, let's not anger the volcanoes. Last thing we need to do is to uh, wake <laughs> up dormant volcanoes. That's number one. Number two, can't we just wait to go to a gas station and fill our car up with lava? Like, this is going to be exciting <laughs> times, you know? These are, Forget these electric car charging stations. We have lava stations now. It's so funny. A, a lot of people, according to the scientists, and I, I guess I hadn't really thought about it, but a lot, there is a bit of a perception there isn't much volcanic uh, activity in Canada. Mm-hmm. And perhaps there isn't. I mean, Mount Cayley itself has actually, you talked about dormancy. It's been dormant since the 1700s. <laughs> so it's been a while since it produced any, but there's still a ton of heat. So I, I don't know. I mean, if, if they're sitting on these untapped resources, yeah, maybe it's worth taking yeah. a closer look at, <laughs> and seeing what we can do. Although we're just learning uh, some of the consequences of drilling for fossil fuels for all this year. I can only imagine the, uh, the conversations people are going to have in 150 years when it's like, why were you drilling for lava? Why were yeah. you drilling for lava? You decided to go even deeper, didn't you? <laughs> it's, uh, anyway, no, I'm, I'm being facetious because I think any of these For kind sure. of renewable projects are really interesting ideas. And the article that Bob wrote was phenomenal. And it was it was trending on some of the big social, uh, some of the big news sites yesterday. I think it was like the sixth or seventh story down on ctv.ca. Uh, so it, cool. it definitely got a lot of traction yesterday. Yeah, no, Bob has a real skill for for boiling these science concepts and projects down into really plain, clear language. It's, it's great to see. Um, and, and it's worth noting that like there's no, we're not even close to the drilling stage yet. So the CAT scan really, really is the preliminary step uh, that will perhaps then determine whether or not they even go ahead with it. Michelle, but the very fact that they can perform a CAT scan on a volcano was kind of wild. It's like. very cool. Well, Michelle, thank yeah. you for having a segment that was overflowing with information. An eruption of news. An eruption of news with Michelle McQuig. We will. And I'm out. And you're gone. Bye, (laughs) Michelle. Talk to you on Friday. Have a great week, everybody. That's Michelle McQuig, the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up next, digital accessibility specialist Denis Boudreau will explain how to use accessibility checkers on software programs. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. I've got a question for you. Do you check your digital documents for accessibility? I have another question for you. Would you even know how? Apparently, there are some tools at your disposal that are built right into programs. Digital accessibility specialist Denis Boudreau is here to tell you about accessibility checkers. Denis is the founder of Inclusive Communication. Denis joins us from Montreal. Hey, good morning, Denis. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Good morning. So, Denis, confession time for me. I didn't even know there were built-in accessibility checkers. So let's start here. What are they and what kinds of programs do they apply to? 
Well, first, I'd say you wouldn't be alone in, in knowing that those exist. So don't feel bad about that. <laughs> but uh, but these tools, basically what they're doing is they help you as you're building a document, as you're creating a document to make sure that you're not missing out on the most obvious considerations that will make those documents more accessible to people with disabilities. So uh, so depending on which software you're using, like there's a there's a variety of those tools that exist. If you're like you've mentioned word earlier on, um, as you were introducing the show today. Uh, so in Word, for instance, or in PowerPoint, you have these checkers that will look for certain best practices and make sure that you did not forget about adding, you know, alternative text to your images or making sure that the structure of your headings are going to is going to be uh, hierarchical and you're not skipping levels, that sort of thing. So that's basically what they do. They help you structure your documents and they help you not forget about the most, you know, beneficial aspects that you can provide to your content so that that content works better for those who need certain types of accommodations. Denny, I, I apologize for the somewhat Captain Obvious question here, but what are the benefits and the strengths of these checkers? Well, the benefits certainly are related to helping someone who doesn't quite know a lot about accessibility to still you know it the right uh, marks, if you will, when it comes to, to creating those documents. So again, like I was saying, not forget about you know image descriptions or or pay attention to color contrast, like these things are going to be picked up by the tools quite reliably. So, so some of the advantages are definitely going to be, uh, to be related to that. One other uh, benefit that I really like about them is that they're, they're a great way for someone to learn a little bit more about accessibility without actually having to learn about accessibility. Because a lot mm. of people, you know, when you talk about those things, are like, yeah, I've got a million other things to think about. I don't think I want to dedicate that kind of energy to this particular topic. But when you are working with a tool, and then the tool just brings up these different considerations, and you identify or understand those considerations as a way to make your document even better than it currently is, then why wouldn't you do that? So you're learning about accessibility without actually, you know, spending brain cycles thinking, oh, I'm learning about accessibility. It just happens very subtly. Mm. Uh, I, I, I like, I, I, I may have said something like that on a previous episode with you, but to me, this is the, the, the strategy of, you know, hiding vegetables in your spaghetti sauce when you have little kids <laughs> and they don't want to eat vegetables, but you just blend them in and people don't know. And then, you know, they still appreciate what you made. It's just kind of the same thing here. Mm. These checkers allow you to do that. Yeah, there's some hand-holding there, right? It's helping people. Absolutely. It's helping people through the process. So those, so those are the positives. What about mm -hmm. some of the limitations of these checkers? Well, checkers can only do so much for you, right? So, uh, so there are a certain number of, of considerations or, or, or aspects that will be taken care of through those tools. So, so you know, they help you not forget about these things. But, uh, but it only does so much. So there. Accessibility is much more complicated than a simple um, automated check on your content. You still have to do a lot of work after, the, after that or, or behind the scenes or after you've done through that part to complete, could complete that, that process. Uh, you know, running a screen reader through your document to see if it works properly is an example of, of such thing. Um, also, for instance, you could... You, you could, for instance, add alt text to your image in a Word or PowerPoint document, but it doesn't mean that your alt text actually describes the image properly. So on top of, of what the tools can do, you yourself need to know a bit more about accessibility so that you are going to, uh, to integrate these considerations in a way that will bring maximum impact or optimization to the experience. And, and that's true for, for other types of documents as well, right? So we, I, I've been talking about Word and PowerPoint here, but... 
in, um, in the context, say, of web content, you've got a bunch of, of browser extensions like that that also do similar things. There's one very popular one uh, called Axe Dev Tools that allows you to run a checker through your web page. And then, again, same idea, find all those low-hanging fruits that you could easily fix. Um, but that, too, will, you know, will require some additional work after the fact to really create a truly accessible, truly inclusive document. But it gives you this, this baseline that already takes you from zero to say 50%, 60% sometimes of your, of your content. And I mentioned, again, I mentioned PowerPoint and Word and, and Web, but you know, PDF is the same thing. Acrobat has a similar checker. And again, you can do similar things in those documents mm. so that your baseline is always a bit more accessible than it would be otherwise. Yeah, it gives you sort of that, that nudge in the right direction and helps you with some sort of quantitative building. And then you have to work on the qualitative on your end as well, right? The, the, the education right. has to continue. Denis, you and I have been talking about this for a couple of years now. So I imagine there's going to be some overlap when I ask you this question, but it's always mm -hmm. worth a reminder for the audience and for people who are listening or watching who are interested. What are the do's and don'ts when it comes to making a digital document more inclusive? Um, well, some of the do, well, okay, there's, there's a lot of things really. Yeah, um, we could be here we, all we day. Should, we, we could be here all day if we went through the whole list. We, we certainly could be. I, I mean, the first one that comes to mind is really about the use of color uh, to convey information. So you know, you could create a document where your color contrast are going to be okay, like in, in the sense that they're going to meet the thresholds that are defined by uh, by the requirements, the, the accessibility standards. But it doesn't, you could still use information that is conveyed only through color. And someone like myself, for instance, as someone who's colorblind, I might miss out on that information. So a big no-no would be to use color as the only way to convey that information. That, you know, that would be an example. Um, you know, using headings is great, but if you use headings based on the size that they are shown at, as opposed to the, the hierarchic level that they represent, again, you might create some confusion for some users who might be a little thrown off a little bit by the structure of your headings. If all of your headings are identified through a screen reader as heading level five or six, for instance, or four, you might be wondering, like, what is the main heading of that document? If it's not there because you thought it looked too big on your screen, you're, again, you're taking something that is meant for good and then you're turning it into something that might cause confusion. So those are some of the examples that, that come to mind. You're talking about images, for instance. So again, using alt text on images is awesome. But if you overdo it and you take decorative images, images that don't convey any information are just there for embellishment or eye candy, for instance, and you start overly describing those images because you want to do well, you're going to just create additional noise that will not necessarily be very helpful for someone who, uh, who benefits from those descriptions to be able to understand the document a bit more holistically if they're using a screen reader and they can't see the images in the first place. So you know, those are some of the examples that, that come to mind about things that you should or shouldn't do. You know, another great example would be if you're working with different types of documents and you're integrating video in them, of course, captions are great. But if their captions are not synchronized, then that would be a big don't because if they're not synchronized, you're always uh, sort of behind or, or running behind or, or, or a little half before the content occurs. And that completely throws you off also regularly. Mm -hmm. so some examples that, of things to consider. Denny, a bit of a concluding thought here. I was recently part of a seminar on how to make Word documents more inclusive. I didn't realize how many little things I could do mm -hmm. to even make my own docs more inclusive, although I'm, I'm more of a plain text user. I, I don't mess around with a lot of stuff. I keep a lot of the bells and whistles out of my documents. But that said, there was so much information and then a lot of jargon that came out, like a ton of jargon. I couldn't mm -hmm 
might retain everything in the presentation. And I don't really have a question here, but it, it's a thought. Sometimes learning about this stuff can be overwhelming if we just try to cram in so much into just a couple yeah. of hours. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, I do a lot of training. And, and a y- years ago, when I started, um, I really wanted to give everyone everything that they needed. And therefore, you know, it's like drinking from a fire hose. There, there's just too much and you keep forgetting stuff as you hear about new things. It's, I mean, ju- just in any kind of pedagogical approach, you want to identify some key elements to teach or, or to learn. And in, 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 your, in your case, as a participant that you would want to learn but then not overdo it so that the things that you learn about, you're actually going to retain afterwards. So from the perspective of the person who was maybe teaching that class that you were on, you were in, uh, maybe it was a matter of maybe identifying items that are, that would be, that would give you the most bang for your buck, but maybe not talk about other things that, you know, you could learn about later if you progress down that path and, and accept that baby steps are always better than trying to teach everything all at once. Yeah. And, um, and, and again, you know, if we were to look into a, a word course, for instance, where you would want to learn more about accessibility, uh, there definitely is dozens and dozens of little things to think about. But by far, the most important things relate to the use of styles, for instance. Mm. If you start using styles in Word or if you start using your master templates in PowerPoint and you maximize those for accessibility, all of a sudden you're making a lot of really great progress with just one particular consideration. Of course, it's not a simple one. There's there's quite a few things to learn about the way to properly use your styles in Word or or use styles or, or formatting and, and master templates in PowerPoint. But if you work with that first, you're going to create this baseline that is really, really clean, semantically structured and rich so that assistive technologies can benefit from that and then therefore provide a better experience to the user. And then you can start adding other things Mm. like alt text, like thinking about colors, thinking about contrast, thinking about hierarchy of headings, thinking about the meaningfulness of your links, for instance, like all these other things can come after because your baseline, your foundation is actually solid and can hold everything that you're going to build on top of it. Denis, we're always grateful for your perspective on these topics. Thank you for making time for us today. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you. Until next time. Until next time. That's Denis Boudreau, the founder of Inclusive Communication. Let's bring in Mike Ross for the big business story of the day. So, Mike, last segment, Michelle and I are talking about uh, using lava and volcanoes for geothermal energy. Maybe Canada's prime minister and the German chancellor haven't quite gone down that road just yet, but there isn't an energy agreement in the works on this visit this week. As you guys were talking about that, all I had in my head was Austin Powers, the the movies, and (laughs) Dr. Evil talking about magma. Magma. uh, Magma. Uh, Yeah. So the two leaders are going to talk and and are expected to sign a hydrogen agreement while in Newfoundland. Now, what's interesting here, Dave, is, you know, it's clear Germany is looking for new sources of energy and, and, and new suppliers of energy since they've, they've had the, uh, to deal with Russia invading Ukraine and cutting available uh, uh, energy sources to a bunch of European countries. However, the one thing that we have to know about hydrogen, and there's been a lot of talk about this. In fact, I read an article for uh, the Globe and Mail today last week about this, is that hydrogen as, a, as an energy source or an energy uh, delivery system is great. 
it is it is clean, it is renewable, and it relies on and can and can be created with renewable energy. So you, you're thinking as far as climate change and wanting to address it and clean energy, this is this is a big hit. The problem is then delivering said hydrogen energy to Germany and to uh, you know east uh, or, or to European countries, you have to have a a, a port. To deliver that, right? Just like Newfoundland, for example, has their their oil rigs where the ships pull up after the oil's refined, pick up the, the oil, and and off it goes on these ships. Same thing on the west coast; they have their ports. There are no hydrogen ports yet in Canada, and building them would take anywhere from five to ten years. Mm. So the concern with a lot of governments and a lot of investors, and those are the big ones, uh, the, the, the big worry is that by the time they get these ports built, will Germany still need this option or will they have shifted to either another source right, of energy right. or someone else to deliver it for them? So there's a, a bit of a, a bit of apprehension to and a bit of hesitancy to invest in building these ports. Uh, Newfoundland is moving towards it. They're repurposing some of their their fossil fuel ports, but even that, when we're talking about five to six years uh, of construction and energy, and the the other caveat is that there's only about half the available jobs. So take half the people that are working on those oil rigs and and in those refineries and those ports and they're unemployed now because you don't need as many people when you're doing the uh, the hydrogen hydrogen thing. So while on the on the face it's really positive and the the conversation is going in the direction that we want to hear our politicians going, the reality is that it's an agreement. It's not really anything etched in stone mm-hmm. because getting anything etched in stone is still five to ten years away. There could be a different prime minister and a different German sure chancellor by the time we get this thing finally. There could be a out. different yeah. source of energy out there available, there Dave. Like that's lava. how quickly things turn, right? Mike the, the lava station. Mike, thank you for this. Okay. That's Mike Ross with the big business story of the day. He'll be back for the regional news update in a couple of minutes. But coming up next, Amy Amanti will review the Netflix series, Keep Breathing. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's get to a Monday edition of AMI at the Movies. Film reviewer Amy Amanti is here for her thoughts on the limited Netflix series Keep Breathing. So don't even worry about calling this AMI at the Movies. It's AMI at the Netflix series. Amy is the host of the Access and Art with Amy podcast, which you can find on your favorite podcasting platforms. And you can find Amy in Vancouver. Hey, good morning, Amy. Hey, good morning, Dave. So, Amy, let's talk about Keep Breathing. What is the premise of this series? Okay, well, I'd love to say it has something to do with magma, but it does not. (laughs) It does not at all. I had to say it. I just had to say it. Um, So, Keep (laughs) Breathing has nothing to do with liquid magma, but it does have something to do with uh, being caught in the wilderness. Um, So, our our main character here is Liv, and she's a no-nonsense lawyer from New York City, aren't they all? Um, so she really doesn't have a lot of personality, so to speak. Um, and she uh, is making her way to the Canadian wilderness 
And I won't tell you why, because they don't tell us why okay. at the beginning. Okay. And on the way, um, you know, she, she, I, she, it seems to me it was quite funny when I was watching this because it felt to me like this must be what's happening at Pearson Airport with all of the like flight delays. But she's there's experience, there's some flight delay stuff, and she is trying to find her way to the Canadian wilderness and. Essentially, she barters travel with a small private plane, two guys on a small private plane, and that plane crashes. Oh, dear. So um, she's left in the wilderness all by herself um, with only her limited personality, um, but her desire to fight and also reliving sort of memories from her past, some some traumatic memories from her past um, to to. I don't know, to base her survival off of. Mm. So I guess the question is, does she survive? Dot, dot, dot. Challenging role for any actor to do so much time solo on screen. So who played Liv and how was the performance? Yeah, so Liv is played by a Mexican actor named Melissa Barrera. Uh, If anybody saw In the Heights, um, she was uh, made famous from In the Heights. Yeah, she's... uh, lead in, in the Heights. Um, and I thought that she was completely believable. I thought that she like totally killed I Like you said, it's very difficult to uh, have that much screen time and to hold that much screen time. Um, now, what's the benefit in this particular series is that we are going to flashbacks of her in her life. So it's not, it's not essentially just her the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it does give a little bit of the breakup of that, um, some might call it monotony, but that, you know, can get kind of stale when you're just with one character the whole time. Uh, but I thought she held her own. I thought she did remarkably well. And I thought that the character of Liv was extremely well believable. I don't know how I would react being caught in the wilderness um, by myself and having to figure some things out. <laughs> But uh, I was feeling terrified when she was terrified and I was feeling calm when she was calm. So that that totally, totally came through the screen. I would do very poorly if I was stranded in the woods. Very, very yeah. poorly. I'm what's known as a first waiver. I'm uh, I'm I'm gone. I'm gone pretty quickly in these scenarios. So, Amy, let, yeah. let's talk about the the structure here or the nature of this limited series. No pun intended, because mm-hmm. those kinds of encapsulated pieces, where especially when we're dealing with a lot of isolation, I'm thinking Castaway. I'm thinking Blake mm-hmm. Lively in The Shallows. I'm thinking Leo mm-hmm. DiCaprio in The Revenant. I'm thinking Adrian Brody in The Pianist for about forty five minutes of yes. the movie. Sometimes these things can get a little bit bogged down. And as an audience member, I'm like, okay, we got to move on here. What did you think about the structure here? So, you know, in generally speaking, I like this structure. Um, I like it because there's a lot of opportunity to see character growth. Um, there's a lot of opportunity for uh, vulnerable moments, which are, as an actor, something you're almost always trying to achieve is vulnerability, uh, like authentic vulnerability, right? Mm-hmm. And you're put in these situations that are not believable in today's modern world for for the most part. Um, we likely won't find ourselves stranded on a desert island as a, as a result of a plane crash. So it's different when you are portraying a character that is experiencing something that likely isn't going to happen to a human being as opposed to, you know, believing that you are, I don't know, a, a, a doctor, for example, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. a litigating in a, in a, in a court of law. Those kinds of things are relatively, uh, 
much more known as an experience, right, than this kind of experience. So the format I like because I like to, if it's written well, there's really nice character development. Um, but it does get a little bit bogged down at times when these stories start to become more than they were intended to become. Mm. Uh, and sometimes there is this essence to want to jam pack everything in a series like this. I mean, this is, this is a six part mini series. It's nice and digestible. Um, you know, the, the episodes are, you know, that typical 43 minute kind of episode okay, okay. Uh, to make room for air quotes commercials, which we don't have in streaming, but that's still the format. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Not yet I know. I know. Oh, geez. Don't say that out loud. But yeah, I mean. <laughs> I, I think I think I, I find in general I find the format if it's done if it's written well I find the format to be really um, uh, a, a really interesting expose into a character. So six part miniseries about forty five minutes per episode. Was there some bloat here? Did they do a nice job of putting all the stuff in that needed to be in? Yeah, I think uh, for the most part for me I felt like there was a nice pace to it, uh, which I think is going to be really important. The pacing of it I thought was really nice. There were some moments that dragged on a little bit long for me when she was out in the wilderness. However, I think that those uh, when I watch that, you know, you like I, I watch these things as an audience member, but I also watch them as somebody who's worked in film and television, somebody who writes stories. And so sometimes you write these things purposely with these sort of long belaged moments for a reason. Um, because you want your audience to feel some of that. Um, and so I think they chose those moments particularly so that I was feeling like, oh, my God, are we ever going to get out of here? When she was feeling like, oh, my God, am I ever going to get out of here? Mm. Um, and so from that perspective, I I, I, I was kind of I was kind of jiving with this one. I'm not going to say it's the perfectly created series that ever existed. It certainly isn't. But I was not feeling like. I need to turn this off and find something else to yeah, watch. Yeah, I, I, I like the limited series. I find it it lends itself Me to make too. sure there isn't bloat, right? That it, that when you get to sort of three or four seasons of a series, it just starts stretching on for the sake of stretching on. You know, the story gets a little bit wonky. Whereas in this case, yeah. you know where your starting point is. You know where your ending point is. It's maybe going to be a little bit longer than a movie, so. You chop it up and you make it work. I think the format makes a ton of sense to me. Yeah, Amy, this has been trending on Netflix. What are people saying about it so far? You know, there's a lot of really mixed reviews about this, Dave, truly. Um, and, I, you know, as many human beings as there are on the planet, there will be that many reviews of anything that we want to watch <laughs> uh, or listen <laughs> to, right? That's 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 the nature of human beings. Uh, we all like different things. So some people are saying that it's that it's boring. Um, certainly, there isn't. It's not an action-packed movie. If you if you're the kind of person who likes superhero films, we talked about this last week, right? If you're the kind of person that likes things that are chock-a-block full of action, this is not the one for you. Um, if you're the kind of person who wants to see somebody MacGyver something out of something they have in their backpack because they think it might make them survive. Then for me, I was kind of like, huh, I'm going to think about that pen I carry, even though I never use a pen to write anymore, as maybe something that can be used <laughs> in a survival mm -hmm, uh, technique mm -hmm. if I need it, right? Like there's all sorts of interesting things that I find um, in shows like this where I'm like, I never thought about doing it that way. Um, so yeah, so there's there's some mixed reviews in terms of, of I, I think it's got getting about a five and a half on Rotten Tomatoes, so that's a 56%. Yeah, okay. Uh, but it's only okay. got like 18 reviews, so like how do you... Oh, so we're early in the game. We're early in the yeah. game here. We're early in the game. We could. There's still some time to pump this up. And after it gets the Amy Amanti bump, then we'll really see those oh, reviews wow. pouring oh. in. Uh, Amy, audio description, how was it? 
So the audio description for me, again, you know, I talk a lot about diversity in audio description because there is this uh, wave moving forward. And in this one, it's really important, as I said, that the um, actor is a Mexican actor and they're very loud and proud about that because the character is a Latina character. Um, and it becomes important to, to understand a bit about the cultural background. Um, but the description never tells you. So you are waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting until that point of the story where you're like, oh, I see. Oh, she's not white. Oh, I get it. Right. Because that's the default. That's what we've been told by audio description is if they don't tell you otherwise, it's white. Um, and so I found that this this uh, particular series didn't do a great job of giving me the, the diversity descriptions. Um, and I, I, you know, I get erged about it and i get even more erged when it's really essential to the plot line amy we have 40 seconds till the hard out what do you give this series out of 10 i'm gonna say that this one is still worth watching especially if you're the kind of person who likes to see interesting character arc and i'm gonna say that there are some interesting twists and turns in here that i certainly wasn't expecting um so that was interesting. So I say it's an eight and a half out of 10 for me. Eight and a half. That, that qualifies as watchable on the Amanti scale. Amy, thank you for this. We appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. That's Amy Amanti with her review of the Netflix miniseries, Keep Breathing. It's trending, so it should pop up uh, relatively close to the top of your feed once you log in. Coming up after the break, we bring in Mike Ross for the regional news update and Jeff Ryman for a sports chat. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-audio and AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Monday, August the 22nd, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, an Edmonton talent agency is aiming to bring more disability representation into the fashion industry. Jim Crisco will dress up those details in the Western Regional Report. And Google's Search AI is set to improve the quality of their feature snippets. Mark Flalo will unpack the jargon a little bit later this hour. Before I bring in Mike Ross for the regional news update, I've got one news story to bring to you in relation to COVID-19. Anticipation Kelly explains. Earlier this week, British regulators became the first in the world to authorize Moderna's bivalent vaccine. It protects against both the original strain of COVID-19 and the Omicron BA1 subvariant. Health Canada is currently reviewing bivalent booster candidates from Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech, which has some people debating whether to wait for the revamped shots or go for a booster now. Experts say the extent to which the bivalent vaccines provide additional protection from catching COVID is still being studied. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press. And while we're talking about COVID-19, let's give some of the raw data. There have been 25,000 new cases of COVID-19 in the last week across Canada. There are currently 5,123 people in hospital. That's an increase of a couple hundred since I gave you an update last Wednesday. 263 people have died in the last week of COVID. And that means since the start of the pandemic in Canada, 43,178 people have died. Let's bring in Mike Ross for the regional news update. 
Thank you, Dave. We'll begin in British Columbia. Delegates from the Nisga First Nation are meeting with staff, curators, and politicians at the National Museum of Scotland today to discuss repatriating a memorial totem pole it says was stolen nearly a century ago. The seven members made the trip from BC to Scotland over the weekend. The nation says the poll was taken without their consent in 1929 and is hoping to start the process to get it back. The museum's governing body said in a statement it has been looking forward to hosting the delegation and sharing procedures for considering requests for the transfer of objects. To the Prairies, Manitoba's first former, rather, Indigenous Relations Minister says she won't be running in next year's general election. Eileen Clark resigned from Cabinet last year over controversial remarks made by former Premier Brian Pallister, who said people who came to Canada did not come to destroy, but to build communities, farms, businesses and churches. The comments, which were made after statues were toppled at the legislature last year, were widely condemned as a defense of colonialism, which Pallister denied. Clark, who is 68 and returned to cabinet under Pallister's successor, Heather Stephenson, says public life is demanding and there comes a time when one has to think about the future. A new monument to commemorate the signing of Treaty 6 now stands on the Alberta legislature grounds. The design includes a tribute to medals given by the British Crown at the time of the signing of the treaty 145 years ago, which features a settler and an Indigenous leader shaking hands. The sculpture is a collaboration between the Confederacy of Treaty 6 Nations, the province and the city of Edmonton, and was unveiled Sunday morning. Alexis Nakota Sioux Nation Chief Tony Alexis says it's an important reminder that the treaty continues to be recognized in Alberta. Ontario is next, and Premier Doug Ford is in Moncton today to discuss the province's health care challenges with the Premiers of Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and PEI. Ford is scheduled to meet individually with New Brunswick Premier Blaine Higgs, PEI Premier Dennis King, and Federal Intergovernmental Affairs Minister Dominic Leblanc. The four provincial leaders will then gather for their summit. Ford's visit to the Maritimes comes as Ontario's healthcare system has been strained by staff shortages in recent weeks. And to the Atlantic region, Fisheries and Oceans Canada is reporting the sighting of an entangled North Atlantic right whale off New Brunswick's northeastern coast. The endangered whale was spotted by an aircraft east of Shippagan on Sunday. Officials say if the whale is located again, efforts will be made to disentangle it by mammal response teams who are on standby. They say the whale's condition is not known, and it's also known it's not also not known what type of gear is involved or where it came from. And those are your top regional headlines going coast to coast across the country. Thank you for this, Mike. We'll talk to you again in about 25 minutes with some uh, CNE talk. You and Grace are both down there this weekend, so we'll find out uh, what the lowdown was like there on the exhibition grounds. But first, let's bring in Jeff Ryman for Sports Chats. Jeff, it was a solid sports weekend. But before we get to any of that, happy belated birthday, my friend. How were the celebrations? Oh, Dave, the celebrations went on uh, basically all weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So, you know, feeling a little bit tired on this Monday morning, but overall, a really good birthday weekend. Well, friends and family were keeping you company. So were sports. Jeff, let's backtrack to Saturday night. What was a fairly lackluster World Junior Tournament 
ended with a spectacular gold medal game and maybe one of the most memorable World Junior moments ever as Mason McTavish deflected a puck that was destined for Canada's net in the overtime, deflected it down, bounced it off the gold line, cleared it out of the cleared it out of the crease, a remarkable defensive moment that essentially led to Canada scoring the game-winning goal just a few moments later. Where does that Mason McTavish moment rank for you in World Junior lore? Let me give you a few more examples, Jeff. We, of course, have the Jordan Eberle and John Tavares goal against the Russians in the semifinals on a Saturday night that sent a game to overtime that Canada eventually won. There was Carey Price making what was it, like seven or eight or nine consecutive saves in the shootout against Patrick Kane for Canada to win a gold medal against the U.S. Those are the two that probably stand out the most for me in relation to this Mason McTavish, but what say you? Yeah, I mean, Jonathan Taves as well, I think, scoring like three or four in a row uh, in the shootout against the U.S., I think that has to be up there. That might have been the same uh, victory. Same game, same game, yeah. So that was an incredible game that Everly won uh, right up there. And I think Mason McTavish, I mean, that 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 sequence of events where, like, if you watch the replay, I think the Finns thought they had this. Like, they're they at did. one point, like, they, I think one player raised his hands as, like, as if they'd scored. <laughs> um, but it was knocked down right on the line and cleared. And then a couple minutes later, uh, a beautiful play from Stankoven, a uh, little toe drag around the defender behind the back pass. And then uh, Kent Johnson finished things off. So I think, um, you know, Mason McTavish just blocking it. Like, like, do you know how hard that is? With um, the blade um, of his stick, with the blade to, of his stick in the middle of the air, in midair, deflecting a puck is difficult. Defect, deflecting yeah. a puck defensively, almost impossible. Like he stopped, like he batted it out as if it was like a fly, you know, just right down. And in overtime too, I think that elevates just how special this moment was because it wasn't like it was just like in the second period and yeah, Finland could have went up. Like this was for the game. Like the game was on the line. If Finland would have scored, that's it. That's It's over. That's yep. the game. Yeah. And uh, so I think, you know, just having the overtime factor as well uh, really amplifies how special of a moment that was. Uh, and like I said, the the goal was a, a beautiful thing as well uh, that 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 Johnson scored. So I'm gonna say, Dave, in terms of ranking, I think that Eberle's might be a little bit more special, but this is like really really close. Like it could go either way. Yeah. I, I think sometimes it takes takes a couple of years to really let this sink in because sometimes in the moment, yes, this is really really cool. <laughs> but I think sometimes in in a, in a couple of years after it really sinks in, you're like, wow, like ten years ago when Mason McTavish did that. That was a really, really special. Yeah. So I, it's definitely up there. Recency bias always plays a part in this, yes. right? The last thing we saw yeah. is the greatest thing we saw. But man, on Saturday, that was pretty spectacular. That was pretty yeah. amazing. That was the kind of thing that Albert Einstein would watch and say, physics sometimes don't make sense. Jeff, I know you were busy on Saturday. Let me give you a couple quick thoughts here from the world of combat sports. Uh, an incredible fifth round comeback for Leon Edwards to unseed the welterweight champion in the main event of the UFC event on Saturday night. Kamara Usman loses the title with one minute left in the fifth round after being demolished by a head kick that came out of nowhere. That is the kind of jaw-dropping and jaw-smashing stuff that uh, we watch MMA for. If you've sat through the first 24 minutes of the fight, uh, you never thought that was coming. It was incredible. And conversely, in the afternoon, 
Anthony Joshua had his rematch with Alexander Usyk for the heavyweight title in the boxing world. Usyk dominated him yet again in a somewhat boring match. And now the heavyweight division that looked so rich just a couple of years ago with Anthony Joshua and Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury now looks really boring because Tyson, uh, Tyson Fury has retired, the lineal champion. Uh, Anthony Joshua has now lost two in a row. Alexander Usyk is just an overgrown cruiserweight. And Deontay Wilder is 37 years old and may not even get a fight against Usyk. The heavyweight division got real boring real fast. And it's such a bummer because you had three stars and you never managed to do any of the crossover fights except for the trilogy of Fury and Wilder, which was great. But people wanted to see all three of those guys go at it. And now the opportunity seems to be lost. Yeah, I mean, um, I think that's just how things go. I mean, we see in every sport where there's just a bunch of greats and then they sort of get old. And then hopefully, Dave, in a couple of years, there's going to be like some new uh, improved fighter that, that can, you know, sort of take the heavyweight division by storm. Um, but you're right. I mean, it is kind of sad. I think boxing definitely missed out on, on a golden opportunity. They cashed in a little bit. I mean, th- those Fury and Wilder fights were pretty hyped. I know yeah. we were really excited about them, but I, I think they could have definitely done a little bit more. Um, you know, obviously COVID sort of had a factor yeah, in there too, canceling a, a bunch of things. That's a fair point. Um, yeah. So they they did lose out on I want to say at least a year. I mean they they were still kind of fighting uh, in Vegas and whatnot, which had looser restrictions. But nonetheless, um, you know there there were some underlying factors that you know may have made this a little bit unfair. But um, yeah, definitely a, a, a little bit of a of a of a bummer seeing this yeah. sort of come to an end. And the politics of boxing got in the way too. Like Fury and Joshua yeah. was a done deal, and then De- Deontay Wilder exercised his rematch clause, and then there was a bunch yeah. of negotiations and million dollars here, million dollars there. Step away, and next thing you know, one guy loses his titles, and it all goes away. That said, if they do a Fury Usyk fight. I'll watch, but Fury's got to come out of retirement first. And uh, he's like six foot nine and weighs 300 pounds. And Usyk is like six one and weighs like 210. Yeah. So there'd be a bit of a size difference there. I, I saw a video of Tyson Fury just sparring with somebody, and uh, he is in no condition <laughs> to make a comeback anytime <laughs> soon. Uh, it's well known that, you know, he likes to enjoy his food and whatnot. And, you know, you know he needs to lose a little bit of weight, I think, yeah. if he wants to make a, a legit comeback. Fighting, but, you know, you never know. He only retired two weeks ago, and he's already fighting for him. That's how, that's how Tyson <laughs> yeah. Fury rolls, man. Uh, Jeff, one last thought here, and it's a bit of a sad one from the CFL world. It was only two weeks ago I'm sitting here talking to you and saying, Nathan Rourke, the quarterback of the BC Lions, Canadian kid playing for BC, tearing the league up. It's remarkable. It's amazing. The Lions are on a run. And now he's a sprain in his foot, a Liz Frank sprain in his foot. He needs surgery. He's probably gone for six to eight weeks. But these foot injuries, even if the surgery goes fine and he's back in six to eight weeks, players after they get the Liz Frank injury are never the same. Talk to Des Bryant, the wide receiver for the Cowboys. Talk to Julio Jones, the wide receiver for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers now. Or talk about Derrick Henry, the, uh, the running back for the Tennessee Titans. They never come back from these injuries the same they were, the same as they were. Well, I mean... When you're playing football, you need your feet. I mean, when you're planting that hard, we're trying to make cuts, when you're trying to power your way through a couple of tackles, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, well, I mean, really, you need your full body to be 100%. But the, the feet, I mean, uh, you can't run. And that's the thing with, with Nathan Work is that he's a mobile quarterback. Um, he, he's able to run out of the pocket if needed, right? Um, this is what he prides himself on. And we were talking about how well of a runner he is. I mean, he was like in the top 10 in rushing yards mm-hmm. as a quarterback mm-hmm. up there in touchdowns. 
Um, I mean, his arm's still great, but I think the mobility is really what makes him um, such a unicorn in, in, in today's um, football world. So that's a tough break. I mean, that midfoot um, uh, sprain, is, like you said, it is no joke. So, you know, hopefully... He's still young, uh, you know, 23, 24 years old. Hopefully he he fully recovers from this and doesn't try to rush back because you're right, Dave. I mean, this guy was turning into uh, basically must-watch TV yep. and definitely putting himself uh, in that in that conversation to be not only a one-time MVP, but like, you know, one of those quarterbacks and players that is just constantly in that MVP discussion, something that we really haven't seen like you're, you were mentioning against, you know, maybe and the Anthony Calvios, the Doug Flutie's, yeah, the Doug Flutie's that were that were just so dominant that we haven't really seen a whole lot of in the last 10, 15 years. The best part was, Jeff, is that he was becoming a bit of a gunslinger too. the game against the Stampeders two weeks ago. He started the game with a couple sloppy interceptions. He threw a couple sloppy interceptions last Friday against Saskatchewan before he threw a few touchdowns and ran a couple in. It was going to be Nathan work time. And now it's yeah. just NFL time. And sorry, CFL, you just you just lost your spot, which you were probably going to lose anyway in the in the Dave Brown lexicon of football. But you, you lost the thing that was keeping me in. So so I'm not out out, but I'm. Jeff, I got to get out of here, man. Thank you for this. All right. See you, Dave. That's Jeff Ryman. He's at the AMI Sports Desk. Grace Scofield is at the AMI Weather Desk. Thanks, Dave. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. In this second hour, we start off in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, where it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and cloud this afternoon with a high of 26 degrees. In Charlottetown, it's mainly sunny today with a high of 27 degrees. In St. John, it's mainly sunny with some increasing cloudiness late this afternoon and a high of 25 degrees. In Quebec City, a few showers ending this morning, then mainly cloudy with a 30% chance of showers and a risk of a thunderstorm this afternoon with a high of 26 degrees. In Toronto today, it's cloudy with a 30% chance of showers, changing to 70% chance of showers this afternoon with a risk of a thunderstorm and a high of 24 degrees. In Sault Ste. Marie, a mix of sun and cloud with 30% chance of showers early this morning, otherwise sunny today with a high of 26 degrees. Over in Brandon, Manitoba, it's sunny. A mix of sun and cloud late this afternoon with a 30% chance of showers with a risk of a thunderstorm late this afternoon and a high of 26 degrees. Over in Regina, it's sunny early this morning, then a mix of sun and cloud with 30% chance of showers late this afternoon and a risk of a thunderstorm late this afternoon with a high of 31 degrees. In Lethbridge, Alberta, it's mainly sunny today with a high of 29 degrees. And in Red Deer, Alberta, it's mainly sunny today with a high of 27 degrees. In Whitehorse, it's a mix of sun and cloud today with a high of 26 degrees. In Kelowna, BC, a mix of sun and cloud with 60% chance of showers or thunderstorms this afternoon with a high of 31 degrees. And in Vancouver, BC, a mix of sun and cloud, but that will clear up near noon with a high of 25 degrees.
And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Grace. Coming up next, Google's Search AI is set to improve the quality of their feature snippets. Mark Aflalo will unpack that for you. But first, one of Hyundai's electric vehicles picked up an award. Mark Remillard will tell you more in Tech Trends. Our EV of the year was the Hyundai Ioniq 5. Tony Kiroga is the editor-in-chief of Car and Driver. He says Hyundai's Ioniq 5 crossover impressed judges with its fast-charging tech. You can replenish 100 miles in around 11 minutes in our testing. And I believe Hyundai claims, and I think we verified it, that... You can take the battery from 10% to 80% in just under 20 minutes. Many noted the Ionics retro styling as well. I mean, if you're a fan of the European hot hatches and even Japanese hot hatches from the 1980s, there's a lot of that that seems to have inspired uh, the Ionic styling. 20 EVs were eligible for this year's competition, though Kiroga expects that number to grow in the future. We may stop doing EV of the year just because, you know, it's just going to be, it's just going to be the mainstream will be electric vehicle. With Tech Trends, I'm Mark Remillard, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-audio and AMI-tv. Let's turn to the world of Google, where their search artificial intelligence is aiming to improve the quality of their feature snippets. So that's a bunch of jargon. Let's unpack it with Mark Aflalo of Double Tap TV. Of course, you can find Double Tap TV Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hey, good morning, Mark. Great to chat with you. Good morning, Dave. How are you? I'm doing well. So, Margaret, let's unpack this jargon. What okay. are feature snippets? So if you do a search for something, something that has some kind of logical answer, like how much is 100 US dollars in Canadian dollars, at the top of Google, you'll see what they call a snippet, which is a, a bolder piece of text that gives you the answer right there. Sometimes there's even a calculation, like a drop down where you can enter the Canadian value and the US value. That's a snippet. That's you know as, as relevant as the information they think that they could possibly serve to you. Were there a bunch of complaints coming out about the results that people were currently getting? Yeah, there's always been complaints and there's always conversation around the quality of the results in which that Google obviously serves you, depending on the question. And the biggest issue that arises is people complaining about lack of context. And when I say lack of context, it means it doesn't know what you searched before. So if you're talking about, you know, uh, going looking for a ski hill this winter and you type, OK, and I'll use, you know, Montreal as an example. We've got lots of ski hills. So I'll go Mont saint Sever. So, it, you know, I know what I'm looking for. So when I go search for something else like who has the best chalet, well, there's no context. It doesn't remember that you're still searching for ski hills. So it's not going to give you something relevant to the fact that you're looking for ski hills. Okay. It's going to give you connect, just a totally connect, brand new connectivity. Yeah, the dots locking the, locking exactly. the co- connectivity. Okay. Correct. So that's a, what a lot of the complaints are is that it doesn't really know where you're coming from or where you're trying to go. And that's what they're trying to correct here. So let's talk about the multitask unified model. That's what's being introduced here to improve the feature snippets. How does this new model work? 
So this new model, in, in the name itself, you can hear the words multitask. So it is now remembering and tracking the history of what you are searching for. The best example is, you know, the, Google gave this example of someone looking to, you know, climb a mountain, climb Mount Everest. So climbing Mount Everest, what do I need to prepare myself? They go and type that and they get that stuff in the search. Then they go, okay, what about uh, insert mountain here? And they say, what's the difference? But it doesn't know what the difference is because it doesn't it didn't previously remember that you were looking for, you know, climbing a mountain. Now, because of this multitask and being able to track what you just searched for, it can give you contextual results. The best comparison here is if you go, you know, for example, to ask Bob and Bob say, you know, how long, you know, what do I need to prepare to climb Mount Everest? And he's done it before. He'll tell you, well, you're going to need an oxygen tank because you're going to get to this high. You're going to need to breathe. Then you go to, you know, Jane, who's never climbed a mountain before. It's like, okay, okay, Jane, what about Mount, Mount St. Hilaire? And she's going to go, well, I don't know, because she's never climbed a mountain before. But if you talk to a mountain climber, they'll know exactly what you're talking about because it's contextual. You're asking them a question in context to what you were looking for and what you were looking for before. So this new model is hoping to use AI and use some of that historical information that you're talking about to give you more contextual results that are more accurate to what you're searching for. So for example, if you say, what's the weather today in Toronto? That's great. And you could say, is it going to rain tomorrow? It should know that you're already talking about Toronto because you just asked it that. Mm -hmm. Follow-up questions that we would have in natural language is the best example that I could possibly give. So it's like you're having a conversation with Google. The, 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 exactly. The, 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 it's the something, pieces are connected together. Exactly. It's something they've been trying very hard to do on their Google Home speakers for a very long time where you ask it a question and it kind of waits and hangs on that question to see if you have anything more to ask about that topic. Right now, it's very robotic. So it, it literally just waits a couple seconds and if you ask it something, it'll know that it's in relation. But if you stop and ask another question later, it's not gonna know that it's in context of mm -hmm. that. So mm -hmm. it's trying to get this AI more conversation, more, more conversational and more contextual so that it gives us more accurate results. Of course, when it comes to the world of search engines, Google is the behemoth. It is the leviathan of the whole of the whole Ooh. operation. But what are other search engines doing to maybe address these these issues that, you know, you'd have the same issue in Bing as you would in Google? Well, other companies are trying to do the same thing. They've been trying. I think everybody is trying to do this. It really is the holy grail of search, right? To be able to create some kind of AI that is as natural as a human being that is able to just carry on a conversation with you and really know everything that you're going with. Unfortunately, you know, things like facial expressions and just just being able to understand natural language is just not something a robot or any kind of AI can be programmed to properly understand 100% across the board. That being said, everybody is trying to do this in some way, shape, or form using their own AI. Um, Google just happens to be, as you said, the, the Leviathan here. They are at the top of the heap. They have every single language pretty much accounted for. So they really are ahead of the curve when it comes to using that search engine data. And this is funny because, you know, as much as we make fun of Google for trying different programs and projects and software and hardware, they really do know that their core base is always, always going to be in search. And as long as they can improve that function of their services, it helps across the board. It helps yeah. absolutely everything they're doing. Yeah. Uh, any other steps they're taking to improve the search queries? It, really, a lot of historical data. They're going back into the databases and trying to 
find situations where they didn't serve the right information and using those as examples to feed into the AI and say, look, this is what you did wrong. This is how it should have been. So they're trying to teach it in that way, shape or form. It's it's a new approach because normally they say, "Okay, well, hopefully future requests are going to help train you now by being able to go back in history and say, here are some search terms or search, you know, uh, strings that went along for you know a couple of minutes. Let's try and train you with it is actually an interesting way to do it as well. Mark, what's coming up on Double Tap TV? We're still in replays for the summer. Oh. Uh, very cool stuff coming up. Yeah, September 13th is the uh, launch of our fifth season. If you tune in tomorrow, you're going to see our episode all about unaccessible gaming. But we've got some lots of really cool stuff coming up for the season. So uh, just, just wait a couple weeks. Se- You'll be uh, September 13th, you said? September 13th? September 13th, wow. 8 p.m. Eastern, oh, AMI-TV. That's coming down the pipeline quick. Everybody strap in. Mark, thank you for this. Thanks, Dave. That's Mark Aflalo. He's the co-host of Double Tap TV, which you can find Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Speaking of great AMI-audio programming, the new season of Dish with Mary is underway. Season two is off and running, and we are celebrating by giving some goodies away to you. I've literally got a box of good stuff in my office right now. We have some artisan pizza and pasta flour. We have some red tomato sauce, some really bougie red tomato sauce, some extra virgin olive oil, Vancouver Island sea salt, and of course, a pasta and pizza cutter. Just a little teensy tiny one with a wooden handle. Listen, this is good stuff. It's in a box that's in my office. It's been touched by me. That means that it has even more value because it's been touched by a national celebrity. So here's what you have to do to enter the contest and win this box of goodies. First of all, you have to be over 18 and from Canada. That's restriction number one. Number two, you have to share with us one of your own favorite recipes or a favorite recipe memory. It's like going on Pinterest or a food blog where you need the recipe, but you have to read through like paragraphs and paragraphs of someone's personal experience of hanging a wind chime before you get to the lasagna recipe. So you have to be sure to email in your submission to feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. And the deadline to enter is actually this week. It's August the 26th at 5 p.m. Eastern time. So feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, coming in by August 26th at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And then the winner is going to be announced next Monday on the show, August the 29th. So a big box of goodies coming your way if you want to enter. Feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. Coming up after the break, Grace Scofield will be here. So will Mike Ross. We'll do a little rundown of what happened at the CNE Fair this weekend because they were both on the ground. We'll do a vibe check with Grace and Mike. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. We're going to get to some fun with Grace and Mike in just a moment. But first, let's get to the accessibility story roundup. (laughs) 
An important story emerging out of Manitoba. Manitobans who manage their own home care are being squeezed by rising expenses and worker shortages. This was written by Holly Carrick in CBC News. Manitoba's self and family managed care program available through regional health authorities allows people who need home care to act as managers and hire their own workers. The intent is to give them more control over who comes through the door. About 1,000 people in Winnipeg manage their own home care. The province has set rates for hiring workers through the program, $21.40 per hour for health care aides and $14.50 for home support workers. Here's the thing. Those rates have not changed since 2012. And they don't translate directly to hourly wages either. People who manage their own care are responsible for paying administration costs like Canada Pension Plan and workers' compensation deductions. And people who use the program say the money available to them has been inadequate for years. Qualified home care workers are also hard to come by. The Winnipeg Regional Health Authority says about 17% of its total home care-related positions are currently vacant. And the Interlake Eastern, Prairie Mountain, and Southern Health Authorities all reported vacancy rates of more than 20%. So this goes back to the accessibility story roundup that I brought you last Thursday about the re-envisioning of disability support in Manitoba, where they're saying we want to give people more control, more individualized options and in how they do these things. But simply saying that we're giving you freedom is not enough. You actually have to give people the adequate resources. And yes, maybe 2140 was an acceptable wage nine years ago for an at-home health aide, But nine years ago was a long time. Just purely based on inflation, that would probably be about $24 or $25 an hour now, maybe $26 an hour based on the rising cost of living. And the same thing goes for the personal service assistants or the personal home care workers. That rate has to go up too. Minimum wage in Manitoba is about to go up to $13.50. So just think about that. Do those numbers. Consider how that possibility works. In theory, if the person managing the operation has to deduct CPP, and other benefits from that wage, is that person now making less than minimum wage? It just goes to show that just simply saying we're giving you freedom to control your own destiny is not enough. You have to give people the resources. Let's bring in Grace Scofield for the Entertainment Report. No need for a big long intro on this one, Grace, because uh, some fun was had on the grounds this weekend in Toronto. Absolutely. I went to the CNE for the first time ever. I've never been before. And I went yesterday, spent pretty much the whole day there. We were there from like noon until about 8 or 9 p.m. Okay. Um, so a big long day. I am very tired. <laughs> Tell me, tell tell the people how many steps you took yesterday. Uh, close to thirty thousand. That's a lot of steps. Yeah, it was a lot. So I've learned my lesson, and it's go on a Saturday so that you can just like hang out and like put your feet up on Sunday because it was a long day. <laughs> Rest in the recovery. Okay, <laughs> exactly. I, I want to bring in Mike, Mike Ross as well. Mike, you were there on Saturday, Nispa. Uh, Mike, sorry, we had you mute there for a second. You you were there on Saturday, right? Oh, somebody has mic on mute. I don't know who has mic on mute, but somebody has mic on mute. Well, hello. There we hello. go. Now we have mic. Okay. Now we have mic. Sorry about that. No, no, it's all good, Mike. So so tell me, like, how, how was your experience on Saturday? We went uh, to the Argonauts football game, so our ticket actually got us into the uh, CNE, so uh, saved a, a few dollars by doing that as well, which was kind of cool. And it was our first time going to the CNE in probably about five or six years. 
I think the biggest thing, I mean, as soon as we got through the, the, the sights, the sounds, the smells, it was great. I mean, to me, it, it's end of summer. It, it really is. And, and you just feel it. You also felt how thrilled people were to be back after two years away from the CNE. So that was pretty awesome. The only thing that I did find kind of kind of jarring was the cost this to me, the fairs like this are supposed to be about families getting a chance to go out, be entertained, have you know, spend some time together. Uh, the games that I love to play, I didn't play a single game um, because the like the water gun games or the like break a, a balloon with a dart game, most of them were ten dollars a game. If you wanted to play the water gun game, it was ten dollars a lot, and you still. You still end up with like this little rinky-dink toy at the end of it, and it's like that's nowhere near. It was nowhere near worth two dollars when you used to win it. It's certainly not worth ten dollars. So that one kind of, kind of left a little bit of a bitter taste in my mouth because so many people were just walking right past the games. There were no lineups. Usually, you're fighting to get a seat at, at some of those games. There were there were no such lineups for that. The food, different story. Oh, 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 Mike, hold, Mike, Mike, hold your thought on the food. Hold your thought on the food because Grace, yep. you had a similar observation about some of like the costs on the ground. Absolutely. Like I've never been to the CNE before. This is my first time. I was like, ah, it's a Toronto thing. It's probably more expensive than anything else I've ever been to. But uh, even my boyfriend, who went every year until he was probably eighteen, said that the games, like the price of the games almost doubled. We played a bunch of the games. It was my first time. We wanted to make it like really fun at the CNE and play all the games. So we didn't go on any rides because that whole safety thing did freak us out a little <laughs> bit. But we did play games. And yeah, that dart game was, I think it was seven darts for $20, which is insane. We found one with like really nice prizes, which was good because we found that the like levels of quality of prizes changed based on which booth you were at kind of thing. So we found one with prizes where we were like, we can pay $20 for this. Yeah, the water games were like $10 per person. It was kind of crazy. So it, it, it turned out to be a really expensive mm. day. The food was worth the prices. Okay, everybody hold your thought yes, on the food. Yes. Everybody hold your thought. Stop trying to lead the conversation. I'm leading the conversation. Okay. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. <laughs> I just before we get to the food, I just want to get both of your perspectives on the ground. Grace, did you feel like it was a fairly easy experience to like get in, get out the organization side? It was really easy. There was like no lineups to get in. We bought our tickets in advance and we actually used the Presto discount, one of the Presto perks, and oh. we got like 36 or 40% off our tickets. Uh, okay. Which was great because even uh, the tickets were more expensive than anybody remembered them being. So we got almost half off our tickets, which was great. There was no lines to get in. It was really easy to just check uh, my purse and get right in. Nice. Super easy to wander around. Everything was laid out really nicely. It was very warm. Would have appreciated a little <laughs> bit more AC in a, their like convention buildings where like the shopping was. Um, but other than that, yeah, really easy time. Yeah, I was hanging out at a bar yesterday where there was no AC. And let me tell you, it got pretty sweaty in there. Mike, what about you? Similar experience on the ground on Saturday? Fairly easy to get in, in and out and get around? Yeah, I, we had, like I said, football tickets. So like it was just breeze right in through the gates. That was not like they didn't even they didn't even look at my football tickets. They just went, oh, football tickets. Yeah. OK, come on in. And wow. so we just breeze through. Um, the one thing that I will say that I did notice was every once in a while, as you're walking through some of the alleyways where the games and stuff are, there are cables like electrical cables that are run along on the ground. And they put these uh, plastic sort of covers over top of them so you don't trip on the cables but 
sometimes I end up tripping on those plastic covers. Yeah, yeah. And what was happening was I was I was just so distracted with everything going on around me. Anytime I came near a, like a painted line on the ground, I thought it was one of those covers. So I kind of did a little bit of a double take and, and, and would stop. So apologies to the people walking behind me. I just <laughs> did not want to trip over anything. Um, but I'll agree with with Grace on the heat. It was a scorcher on Saturday. So we found ourselves going into one of the convention buildings, sitting down and watching a, a gaming competition, two teams of gamers playing a video game. You're watching it on the big screen. There are people cheering them on. I had no idea what was going on in this game, and I, I certainly would never be able to play the game. It was way too fast for me. Yeah. But boy, was I appreciative for the chair I got to sit in <laughs> and the air conditioning they had in the building. It was wonderful. Yeah, we take we take these breaks uh, seriously as we uh, as we oh, yeah. creep up a little bit in age. Okay, Mike, I'm going to start with you on this one. I don't need the full menu of every single item you consumed. I don't need the full itemized list. But did you get your hands on anything interesting or tasty on Saturday? Um. Well, interesting and tasty. I had a brisket sandwich, which which was nice. It was it was quite tasty. A little piece of cornbread, um, mainly because the lineups in the food building were were pretty long. Okay, and in some cases very slow. So I went to a, a stand that was empty that had something that I knew I was going to like, and because we went to the football game. I didn't really partake in a lot of uh, fair food. Right, uh, right. I think the only other thing we had, my wife had a, a soft serve ice cream cone. So we didn't do anything too exotic there. But it wasn't like the fancy uh, like mustard or ketchup ice cream cone that, that your wife tried. No, we didn't do any 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 exotic stuff like that. I was looking for it. We, My wife wanted to try it. I had no interest in trying it. <laughs> she wanted to try it, but we never saw it. We never, ever went okay. past it. So here's where we bring in Grace. Grace, I do want to hear about your massive selection of lemonades that you got your hands on. Yes. But first, tell me about the ketchup ice cream. So the ketchup ice cream, it was by one of the exits. There wasn't really a lot of signs for it, so it was also hard to find. I found things were really difficult to find. We couldn't find the mac and cheese cone, and we couldn't find the two-foot-long tacos. There was things on our list that we just missed. But this ketchup ice cream was okay. It was like It was nothing, like, offensive. I wouldn't eat it again. Was it worth the $10? No, we didn't finish it. We were splitting it between like six people. We couldn't even finish it. You like, you take the first taste and it just tastes like regular, no flavor soft serve, almost like a McDonald's soft serve for like a quick second. And you're like, oh, this isn't bad. And it's a nice light pink color. This could be okay. Then you get like the aftertaste of the ice cream is what the aftertaste of ketchup tastes like. So not like actually ketchup, just like old ketchup. Yeah. If that so makes are you, sense. So are are you glad you tried it or would you have preferred to spend that 10 bucks on a game? I'm glad that I tried it. I do think it was fun. It had like one of those like veggie stick chips dipped in ketchup as a little garnish with like some ketchup flavored sprinkles. <laughs> it was cute. It was fun. It was worth it. A fun experience. A uh, few of our friends did end up spitting it out. A couple of us weren't as dramatic and we were able to handle it a little better. Um, but it was it was worth it. It was a fun time. It was a good try. Okay, Grace, anything else on the ground food-wise? You mentioned to me a bunch of ices and lemonades made their way towards uh, your lips. Yes, because it was very hot out. So there was lots of lemonades, lots of slushies being consumed. I had a strawberry lemonade. It was delicious. Mm. I couldn't find the spicy dill pickle lemonade. I did want to give that a try. Didn't get the chance. Probably for the better. Um, I got a pickle on the stick. And then the Mm. best thing, I think, was the deep fried cinnamon toast crunch cheese curds. They were like fun Mm. to eat. 
They were just a good, mm-hmm. like, little... We had. I think we had that first, actually. And they were fun to eat. They tasted really good. You can't complain about a cheese curd. Let's be real. You. I mean, um, you said a bunch of my favorite things there. Cinnamon yeah. toast yes. and deep fried and cheese curd. Yes. I don't know if I would put those things together, but I would certainly give it a crack. Surprisingly, it was a very nice flavor palette. All right. Okay. <laughs> hey, Mike, Grace, I'm so glad you guys had a chance to enjoy some time on the grounds this weekend and give us that little bit of a review. I love it when we can get this sort of real-world experience on the show ASAP. So, Mike, thanks for hanging out on video a little bit longer for us today. We appreciate it. My pleasure. And, Grace, thank you very much for sharing your experience on the ground as well. Sounds like you know how to fare it up real good. <laughs> of course, Dave. You fared well at the fair. <laughs> Let's bring in Ramya Enwithin to find out what's coming up on Kelly & Company this afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Ramya is the co-host of that show. Good morning, Ramya. How are you? Good morning, Dave. I'm doing well, and I'm loving the reviews on the CNE. Thank you, guys. Well, I think, I don't know if you have any plans of going down. I don't think I'm going to go down. I was in the West End yesterday and I had a bunch of Uber drivers complaining to me about the fare. I don't think I'm <laughs> going to go down, but I don't know. What about you, Rami? Any interest in the, in the CNE? You know, it's funny you say that, Dave. I always try to make one appearance at the CNE or another. I try to go on a weeknight, to be honest with you, because I avoid the, the weekend, you know, rush hour feel of yeah, CNE. But yeah. this year I have been pretty iffy myself, just thinking I, it's honestly the prices. I really am just, you know, concerned about how much money I need to spend on a basic CNE experience. So mm-hmm. we'll see. It's also like a pretty yeah. long schlep. It's a pretty long schlep down there, down there for coming from, from our neck of the woods up here in the north. Uh, mm-hmm. Ramya, what's coming up on the show today? Okay, well, we're talking about um, – uh, with Grant Hardy, our AMI reporter in Vancouver. Tonight's episode of AMI This Week on Violet Peterson. Looking forward to finding out who she is and why this is an important feature. Also, Bonterra. I'm really excited about this conversation. So, Bonterra announced the unveiling of its new show-stopping floating art installation on Lake Ontario. And this is uh, it has a goal of improving biodiversity. So it's not just art. There's some practical purposes to it. They want to create a diverse wildlife habitat for plants. And they're obviously opening up some conversations here. So we're going to learn more about the unique initiative. And plus, we're talking Waymo. Uh, you might know about this for the autumn, um, autonomous vehicles. But Waymo is designing new features for improving access to passengers with access needs. And we're learning more about that with Michael Babcock. Right on. Rumya sounds like a well-versed, interesting shot, interesting show. So enjoy that one, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Sounds good. That's Rumya Amuthan, co-host of Kelly and Company, coming your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Coming up next, Jim Crisco is down the hall in Studio One. He'll tell you all about an Edmonton talent agency that's aiming to bring more disability representation into the fashion industry. So we're going to get dressed up with Jim Crisco on Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Usually we need to go out west to get to the Western Regional Report with Jim Crisco. We typically find him in Alberta. But we did the opposite today. We're bringing the West to us. 
Just down the hall in Studio One is content development specialist Jim Crisco in Toronto for big meetings, big executive meetings. But he took some time away to talk to us this morning. Hey, good morning, Jim. Good morning, Dave. You know, uh, here I am. I'm in Toronto. I'm three doors down from you. And and uh, what are you having a party in there? Like, can you guys keep it down? Like, <laughs> it sounds like you're having too much fun. Yeah, I know. Uh, are, we're bleeding out into the boardroom. I can tell, Jim. I can tell we're bleeding into the boardroom and upsetting people. It's how we roll here on now with Dave Brown. Hey, uh, Jim, let's start with a topic coming out of Edmonton, where a local business is aiming to make the fashion world more inclusive, one photo shoot at a time. Tell me a bit about Kello Inclusive and what they're doing to increase representation. Well, this is a, this is a really cool story and, and so long overdue and necessary uh, in the modeling industry. This is from CBC, by the way, uh, the story here. And, and what it is is a, a lady named Katie McMillan. Uh, who's the founder of Kello Exclusive. She has a daughter who's a wheelchair user, and um, her 12-year-old daughter, Kelty, um, was, she wants to, she's in modeling, wants to become uh, a model, and does modeling already, but realized that there's, there's so many barriers to models. It, it, it's not an industry that's really adapted uh, at this point uh, to have in, inclusivity to models who may have um, either mobility issues or, or neurodiverse uh, challenges or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So she, she recognized this and she said, well, there's a whole, you know, people of e- either who are modeling or maybe want to get into modeling that there are barriers to it. Um, as an example, and this is a kind of a frightening uh, barrier, is she said that I, I believe it is three out of four uh, fashion shows would not have ramps that go to the stage mm-hmm. for someone to be able to use it if you're a wheelchair user. So, you know, she she identified this. So she decided to create this uh, this company that was going to have inclusive, you know, basically be able to uh, help inclusive talent and yeah. and have photo photo shoots etc. That uh, that have inclusivity. Yeah, it really stands to reason, right? That if you want to show representation in your shoots and on your runways and on your and on your walkways, you have to be able to make sure you're making clothes that are actually accessible and inclusive to people, right? That that people with disabilities want to be fashionable as well. Maybe not me. I'm, I'm the opposite <laughs> of fashionable. But there are people who have that genuine interest and want to look sharp and want to look good. And because maybe there's some body differences or because there's the use of accessibility tools or mobility aids, that that clothes need to be cut a little bit differently. That doesn't mean they're not fashionable. They're just cut a teensy bit differently. You're just moving some fabric around. Absolutely. And, and the opportunity to see yourself in the clothing uh, really helps to purchase it, right? I, yeah. I mean, yeah. If if you're going to, uh, you know, even into catalogs and such, you tend to see models. We don't really recognize ourselves often in it, but you know, it's it's even a step more for persons with disabilities who who might not see the wheelchair or might not see the mobility aids mm-hmm. um, to be able to help them. Uh, pick out, you know, clothing that they find attractive. Yeah, absolutely. What's the response been like so far since the launch of the business? The the response has been really good. The, the business only la- launched a couple of months ago. Um, and the, the the response has been great, not only from the modeling community, uh, because there's there's all these people that, they, they may be models already, uh, that just haven't had that, that being able to work with a company that acknowledges and knows how to work with them. But also people who are who are on the fence about modeling that now can give it a try. So the the, the idea, the concept has been really popular, has been extremely uh, uh, well received, and well received 
for companies as well that, that want to, to have that presentation representation in their advertising. Very good. Jim, let's move over to Winnipeg, where there's a new transit policy in place that's aiming to better accommodate people with disabilities. So what's changing here to offer better accommodation? Well, what's changing is on typically uh, right now on buses in Winnipeg, and I'm sure in a lot of cities in, in Canada, there there is a, you know, at the front of the bus, a section for people who have disabilities, uh, might have mobility aids, uh, you know, et cetera, that can, they can sit near the bus driver for, for a number of reasons. Sometimes it's to communicate with the bus driver on what the next stop is. Sometimes it's, it's space for their wheelchair uh, or mobility device. But What's happened is those are, are kind of optional spaces. They're, they're, they're marked, but it's never been enforced before mm-hmm. that these are spaces for the disability community. They're, they're spaces that if you show up and they're available, people use them. So what they're doing now, uh, and it's not being rolled out immediately, they're doing the education portion now. They are making it so that those seats have to be given up for someone with a disability if they get on the bus. So if someone is sitting there, there will be a message that's played that is played on the bus or on the transit system that says, um, "Can you please relinquish relinquish your spot to the uh, person with disabilities?" Mm-hmm. Um, that allows them to sit down. And now it's it's going to actually have um, some bite to it that you know people can be asked to move. The bus driver can ask people to move to a different seat in order to create this space. It's it's just giving the authority, right? We just hope we hope that people would naturally be kind, that they would just have that natural inherent ability to be kind. But we know that kindness is not policy. And sometimes you have to put these actual structures in place. And it makes sense. I know something they do in Toronto that I really like is they actually change the color of the seats for uh, for people with disabilities or the, I guess you'd call them the accessible seating options. So most of the bus is red, but part of it's blue. And maybe you don't quite immediately pick up on that what that difference is, but as soon as you figure it out and as soon as it clicks, you go, oh yeah, that clearly marks that this is a reserved seat or a seat that's reserved for someone who has a disability, who's elderly, pregnant, et cetera, who has a mobility need. And I think little things like that alongside with the idea of enforcement and structured policy makes a huge difference. Absolutely. And that and that's really what it comes down to, right? Uh, you know, I, I think people have been given the chance to be kind. And then there's some people, I, I, I'm not saying they're not kind. I think there's some people that are just oblivious to that type of thing that yeah. they might not notice. Uh, and now they'll be, you know, it, it'll be worked through, I think. Not to mention taking a busy bus is a little bit like the Hunger Games. I've definitely, <laughs> I've been on those buses where I'm like, am I giving up this seat? No, no, I'm not giving up this seat. I need this seat. I must cling to it. Uh, Jim, you mentioned there's a bit of a timeline thing. We've only got about 25 seconds here, but what is the timeline for the implementation on this? Right now they're in the education phase. October 5th is when they plan to actually roll it out as as the new rules. Jim, this has been fantastic. I'm really glad we were able to connect with you uh, virtually down the hall, and I'll come uh, storm your meeting a little bit later and take some of the pizza that's going to be there for lunch. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> that's Jim Crisco. He's a content development specialist for AMI, joining us from down the hall instead of Edmonton, Alberta. So that was super fun. That's all the time we have for the show today. We'll be back again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. 
every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.